Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. There's still people come up to me and go, oh, not on telly anymore. You know, the, you're not on telly so much anymore. Where, where have you been? You know, it's like you've died because you're on telly and then suddenly you weren't. I might get a urinal shaped gravestone. He said, look, everything good until it's shit. And everything shit until it's good. Oh, God, just, you know, I just envy some people who just, yeah, really, you know, I like my life, you know. You know, I often joke, you know, it was. And I am kind of joking, but there's something in it. Is that, you know, it's basically, I mean, people like me, it's like blokes I'm quite wanting to go out drinking with and, and women are quite fancied. It was sort of, well, that's not how I put it to a priest. Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. Although maybe not today, maybe just the one will suffice, because my guest this week is a man who's found mindfulness when it comes to drinking, which I'm very intrigued to hear more about. He's been in our living rooms and on our radios for almost 30 years now and started his professional life as a sports reporter, a dream gig for a self-confessed football nut and lifelong West Brom fan. Born and raised in Quinton, Birmingham, he joined the BBC on work experience and moved between most notably Radio 5 Live and BBC Two, where for 10 years he hosted their live daily business show, Working Lunch, all the while married to fellow broadcaster Jane Garvey, with whom he shares two adult daughters, Evie and Sean. Then came the call to host the Apprentice spin-off show, You're Fired, which made the BBC realise they'd been sitting on something of a gem of a broadcaster for way too long and decided to move him up the schedules to host first match of the day two and then the one show alongside Christine Lampard, where they drove the show to huge rating success. In 2008, such was his success, he was officially the most watched person on UK television, seen by over a billion viewers, unseating even Anton Deck from the top spot. As is often the way, the BBC's competition, ITV, decided that they wanted in on this ratings-winning double act and lured Adrian and Christine over to the channel to launch Daybreak. After a year of dawn calls, he swapped the breakfast sofa for the ITV Sports Studio and returned to Radio 5 Live, where he continues to this day to broadcast. In 2019, by now divorced for almost a decade, he began writing a column for The Guardian and subsequently went on to date and eventually married the newspaper's editor, Catherine Viner. 
Having become a Catholic at the age of 39 and divorced at the age of 40, he remains a man of great faith and in recent years has also been diagnosed with ADD, which is something he's talked about with refreshing honesty. In fact, refreshing honesty seems to be something of a theme in the many conversations he manages, be it with himself or his readers, his listeners or his viewers. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him today. Let's dial him in, shall we? It's Adrian Charles. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm I'm slightly overwhelmed by that very thorough biography. Um, Do you feel like I've stalked you? (laughs) Well, well, not not so much that. I thought, Brian, when you say thirty years, is it really? But you know, of of course, uh, of course, it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting what you say about honesty. It's just. I just think honesty sets you free. I can't, you know, maybe to my detriment, just, I don't know, I'm not trying to sound sort of worthy or anything, but I don't really know any other way to do it. It's not so much honesty, it's just sort of frankness and, you know, just, mm. well, it is, is what is and, um, you know, just to, to help with the consequences of saying as much. You kind of latched onto the 30 years um, that I mentioned there. But what was it like listening back to that, listening to your life reported back to you? Because I I know for myself that, you know, if I had to write my own intro, it wouldn't be as it it wouldn't be what somebody else would write for me. I think we we often report ourselves in, in quite disparaging tones. Is it nice to hear somebody find finding all the good in all you've done? Um. I don't know. I know I've done loads of stuff, and it feels to me like if you if you imagine there's a bucket, and into it goes all the stuff you've done in your life, professionally, and then you know you you keep accumulating and wake up every morning, every week, every year, and it's got a bit fuller that bucket. What it means like there's a bucket with a hole in it. So you know every day <laughs> I wake up and there's the bucket's absolutely empty again. I've I've, <laughs> I've proved I've achieved nothing. I've proved nothing, and I've got to start all over again. You know, unless if you're not careful, well, if I'm not careful, I end up taking that kind of that kind of view, which of course is the route to absolute madness. So you know you can't mm. really can't really go there. Um, as we enter into the festive season, your book becomes very meaningful again. I think this is the the, the time where we socialise harder than any other time of the year. It is the season to be jolly. Um, talk to me about The Good Drinker, because I know that it's something that people talk to you about, not on a daily basis, but not far off it, in terms of being intrigued by the way you've managed to hold on to your drinking life in a really good way, rather than just having to kick it to the curb. Yeah, I mean, I just try to get across that, you know, for many big drinkers, it's, you know, the only way to really bring it to a, you know, to to deal with it is to stop completely, at least for, a you know, at least for a few months. Um, but there there is another way. You know, there isn't, there is another way. This might be appropriate for some people. It's important that this is out there. If, if only because there's so many drinkers who really need to address their drinking, but they're frightened to death of the idea of stopping drinking. So they're frightened. Some doctor's going to say, yes, you've got to stop completely, and they can't imagine their life without it. So that in itself ends with them not dealing with anything. You know, you've, people have got to understand that, you know, there is a way of moderating. And look, even just moderating a bit helps, you know, let's say, you know, if you're drinking 50 units a week, you know, which is roughly, say, 20, 25 pints of beer, say, um, the recommended healthy amount is 14 units a week. Which boils down to what, seven pints? But about seven pints, or seven pints a week, yeah. or, a, you know, a, a bottle of wine is about nine, about nine, ten units. So, but the, the point is, People will hear those, heavy drinkers will hear that 14 units a week figure. And think, well, I'll never get down to that. That's absolutely ridiculous. So they just won't bother. And what they need to understand that if you go just down from 50 to 40 units a week, you're doing yourself a lot of good. In fact, you are doing yourself relatively more good than going from 50 to 40 you're making more of a difference, sort of proportionally, relatively, whatever the word is, than if you're going from 20 to 10 units. Mm. 
just because the way the harm curve works without getting too technical about it. So marginal gains are available here. You know, you don't have to quit completely. You don't have to get down to 14 units a week to get some benefit from it. What really resonated with me was your two drinks theory, right? And you were so right. The first drink, you know, that first glass of wine, for example. So I'm a wine drinker. Yeah. And for you, it would be the pint. You go, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second glass or the second pint sort of supports that. And that's nice. And I'm kind of nice on two glasses. And then by the third, you're just chasing what's gone. Yeah. And all that lies in after that, for me at this this stage in my life, is a hangover. (laughs) On two glasses, I'm good. Yeah. And that was your recommendation. Well, not recommendation. That was your observation, which is, you know, those those first two are, that's Mm. really what you're there for. Well, the the whole book was sort of about changing your changing the mindset a bit on it and just delaying everyone to take a long look at themselves about how you, you to really understand and appreciate what's going on. So the point I was making that you have that first drink and for whatever reason, that first drink, you know, makes you feel better, gives you a change of emotional state. And then the second drink, much less so, and every subsequent drink, every subsequent drink is 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 just a futile attempt to recreate the feeling that the first drink gave you. It's interesting that when you read the book, you really get the sense of your own self-discovery, how you're learning about yourself. You're looking back and you're collecting learnings from your writing. So with that in mind, I'd like to jump to my first question, if that's okay. Go on, man. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the lessons that you've accrued having left school. Life lessons, right? Be it via therapy, be it via fame and its misfortune and, and the misfortune it can bring. Finding faith in Catholicism, um, marrying, divorcing, marrying again, being diagnosed with ADD. I mean, like every time you tackle any of these subjects, you really put yourself out there as the story. And I love that about you as a journalist because so many journalists hide themselves away from being the narrative. And I just wondered, having written about all of that and and your relationship with drink, what have been the most informative acquired life lessons that you have collected across the course of your adult life? My agent actually has got a good... Got out well. Um, you, you know, it's it's hardly that insightful, but it really sticks in my mind. He said, "Look, everything good until it's shit, <laughs> and everything shit until it's good." Now he's talking. You know, he's obviously been an agent. He's talking about he's talking about career. You know, and and work and stuff. But I think it's really important to bear in mind. It's particularly important to focus on both sides of that. And actually, the best side to focus on is is the bit which is everything shit until it's good. That's the bit to focus on. If you're preoccupied with the other side, as I am if I'm not careful, then it's kind of, well, everything's good until it's shit. So you can't enjoy anything because you think, well, you know, any kind of success. It's like when West Brom score a goal, I think, well, I'm going to feel that much more miserable when we end up losing this game. I mean, it literally is like that. And I've just got to, you know, so... I think the the problem is as you get older, you can see lessons. You could learn them, take it on board, but actually enacting it is difficult, you know, because you get so set in your mental ways. You know, it's really, it's really, really hard. I swapped my bins around in my kitchen where the recycling was. I mean, literally about six years ago, the recycling was and where the, the ordinary bin was, I'd swap places, right, for reasons too boring to go into. And to this day, I still go to the wrong bin, you know, because it was just <laughs> hardwired into me. So in terms of learning lessons, the first one is to see what kind of person you are, how you are, appreciate how you think, right? And then I think the second one is working out, which is where therapy comes in. Therapy comes in the first bit, but also in the second bit, into... 
okay, so why do I think like that? Why am I like that? I've seen how I am. Mm. Then you ask, why am I like that? Now, those two, you know, are worth doing probably. But then they need to lead to the third one is, okay, well, how am I going to change? And that yeah. is so hard. That's the that's the tricky bit. That, you know, that, that's the, yeah. you know that's the that's the tricky bit. And you've you know the older you get, the harder it can be. The harder it can be to sort of work on to 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 achieve that. And I think, I mean, what it, it slightly comes back to drinking. If you're drinking less, I just think I, I absolutely get the benefits of drinking, and I still get them, and so on. But you know, I think drinking loads all the time just can be a substitute for clear thinking or can certainly get in the way of clear thinking. So when the alcohol, the, the, the fog of alcohol clears, you can see things more clearly. You're probably a bit less depressed and anxious. And, yeah, and, and you can, you know, and, and you just, I don't know, you just have these, you know, you just have these, these moments when you think, blimey, wise up. You know, it's, it's it's like the bit. It's a bit like, you know, when somebody close to you and young gets ill and dies. I mean, as horrific as that is, there's a moment of something approximating. Um, I don't know what the word is, but there's, there's something approximating positivity when you think, well, hang on. I've got to just enjoy my life. I've got to enjoy what I've got left. You know, I've got to, you know, I can't get hung up on work or some aspect of relationship or something. You know, the only, the only, uh, you know, the only thing I can, um, you know, the, the only thing you can do is just, you know, it's just make sure you enjoy you know, enjoy life, but you capture that in that moment. It's almost euphoric. It's almost euphoric at that moment. Yes, you know, yeah. I've got to take from this tragedy that to really enjoy life, and you have it for a, for a matter of minutes sometimes, and then it goes again, and you're back. You know, you're, you're back. You know, you're back smashing the house up because you can't find your car keys or something. <laughs> yeah. well, I, remember, I remember ages ago. I think I was struggling with something like that. I wasn't having a particularly good time. I was a bit down about something. And I went out somewhere with some friends. It wasn't really my kind of night. It was somewhere bloody flash and expensive in London. And I was out with a load of rugby players, bizarrely. Um, there's a, a friend of mine who used to play for England and I was out with him and some of his crowd. And there was a there was a rugby player there and he was he was married to this. I mean, I, I'll be honest. She was absolutely staggering looking, and she was a model and also a concert pianist. And I wasn't, and she wasn't making it up because I sort of I googled her at some stage. Yeah, that's what she was—a modeler and a concert pianist. <laughs> but anyway, I was, I was chatting to her, and she said, "I know I was moping away about." It. And she said, "Look, something you got to remember is that you know, uh, happiness is a lifestyle choice." Yeah, and I think about that every day, and she was right. But knowing that doesn't mean you can sort of do it. You know, it's not you know, it's not as easy as putting on a different colour pair of socks. You know, you've got to really try, try, you know, try hard at it. It is hard, and, and I think sometimes I think we have to go through difficult kind of you know heartaches, I suppose, to remind us to. Enjoy yeah. the good bits. I think. I think it's, it's. There's. There's no way to learn life's lessons without getting a few dents in the bonnet along the way. Would Would that be your experience? I think that's. Yeah, I, I think that's true to some extent. But there's a guy I go to the. Um, there's a guy I go to the football with, to West Brom with. He goes to every game. An old fella called Alan Cleverly. His name is, and he always wears a hat. And he, on the way to matches, he always is absolutely certain we're going to win. I am 100% certain we are going to lose. And he said to me once, he said to me once, he said, look, the difference between me and you is we are both, we're both going to have the same journey home. Right, if West Brom have won, you'll be, uh, you know, we'll be happy. West Brom have lost, we'll be miserable. The difference is I have a much happier journey there. 
because I'm because I'm looking forward to it. You don't seem to be dreading it. <laughs> and, and the other thing he said once actually is just after we you know we were winning two nil, you know with one minute left and ended up winning three two and we had to get back from Sunderland or whatever it was. And I remember saying once, he said, look, without despair, there is no joy. Yes. So, I mean, to your point about life being a zero-sum game, I think there's something there's something in that. But it's not absolutely necessary, I don't think. Some people are just happy, just happy with what they've got, you know, and just, you know, these are the people I admire most, you know. And, you know, even some, sometimes it can come down to a lack of ambition, and a lack of drive, which you know is is a you know is a contemptible thing in some people's eyes, but oh god, just you know, I just envy some people who just yeah, really, you know, I like my life, you know. Oh, you know, do you want to do better? Do you want to be you know instead of being a, a teacher, do you want to be a headmaster? You know, instead of being you know um, you know I don't know a, a sword carrier, don't you want to be the the star of the play? So, no, no, I really just really enjoy it. I thought I admire that so much. I admire that more than any of the the biggest achievers ever. Contentment. Contentment, yeah. I mean it's interesting. There's I do this thing on my radio show called The Winners Enclosure, where we interview winners, people who won lots of stuff. And it's very interesting. They divide about halfway down the middle between those who do it for the love of winning. Do it for the love of the sport is the main thing. But when you're a professional, that can that can weigh when it becomes your livelihood. But but just love winning. There's an extraordinary number of people who are in it because they hate losing. It's not to do with winning, yeah. it's about just hate losing. And there's some big stars who really couldn't tell you, who couldn't tell you the who couldn't tell you anything about their winning moments. But they can remember losing in a you know, a school football match final when they were 13. You know, that's etched on their memory, you know. So, again, to your point about joy and despair, if it's the fear of the despair that's driving you, that's, I'm not sure that's quite right. No, but I think you need one to offset the other, don't you? I mean, yeah. and, and, and it's all about disposition because, you know, the, what you've just described there is is pretty much somebody that chooses not to walk on the sunny side of the street. And, you know, yeah. it's like your mate that goes to the football with you. He's walking on the yeah. sunny side of the street. You're staying in the shade because it's probably going to be shit on the way home and, you know, yeah, the result's yeah, not yeah. going to be ours. And it's, it's, about, it's about how you view things. I wonder what it is then that has driven you to some of those big changes in your life. Like, for example, Catholicism. Were you in a happy skipping into the church state of mind when you started to explore faith? I mean, it's a long, I suppose it's a long story, but it's quite, the simple version is probably the most truthful one, actually. It's that I'd always been a believer. And I often think that's genetic, really. I think it's like being in, you're either into football or you're not, and there's no reason why some people are and some people aren't. I think some people, I just felt it in my bones. There was something, I had some sense of the, supernatural if you if you like or some sense of a god or, or or something and my parents though are complete my parents and my brother are complete i mean not you couldn't call them agnostics they're just atheists or whatever the word is when you just think the whole business mm-hmm. is a load of bollocks and i just remember <laughs> going to and i don't but i'd always been kind of a believer but never found really a church to go to but then when i was in my late 30s a friend of mine was a catholic and he said, why don't you just come, do you want to come to Mass with me? I said, all right, yeah, fine. So I went to Mass with him and I just I just felt at home there. I can't, you know, I didn't, you know, I wasn't looking up and seeing the angels singing or anything. I just felt at home. I felt like I was with people a bit like me. You know, I often joke, you know, it was, and I am kind of joking, but there's something in it. It's that, you know, it's basically, when I mean, people like me, it's like blokes I quite wanted to go out drinking with and, and women I quite fancied. It was sort of, well, that's not how I put it to a priest. <laughs> no. Obviously, but it just felt, you know. But I just sort of felt at, felt at home there. And I think, mm. I think you've got to, I think in stuff like politics and, I don't know, you know, managing your money or, I don't know, various things. You know, you've got to be where, you've got to go with what you think rather than you feel. 
So you've got to go what you feel. So you don't go with the facts rather than sort of anecdote. You know, just because you happen to get mugged doesn't mean crime is rising for everybody. You know, it's quite difficult yeah. to separate. But I think, you know, or, you know, or, or, or all sorts of stuff is like that. You've got to, to some extent, you've got to examine the facts and go with your head to some extent rather than your heart. But, you know, with religion, I think, if there's ever a time when you can say, look, I, I, you know, it's, it's just what I feel here. It's not what I think. I mean, if I, if I, I couldn't sit down and map it out on a piece of paper, God exists. Christ died for us all. Is how the Holy Spirit works. I mean, I just I've never troubled myself to do that. I mean, I just think that's theology, and I, that, that it, I mean, I just think it's a bit ludicrous to me. It's just go with you know what you feel. If you sit there and feel something that approximates peace, then fine. That, that I mean, that's it. I mean, it's that simple. And always, it was a, it was it was about showing gratitude. You know, I think. Mm. You know, so who do you thank? Who do you thank? It's always been in my mind, that question. I mean, donkeys years ago, I interviewed Michael Owen after he'd been brilliant at the age of 17, I think, in the 98 World Cup. It's called Brilliant Goal for England. And I said, how do you feel after that goal? You know, who, who, who did you thank? Who do you thank? And he, and he was going, oh, no. He just, I mean, he was, look, it was a fatuous question in a sense, and he certainly didn't have an answer for it. He goes, oh, no, mum and dad, I suppose. Look, which is like, which is perfectly, you know, it's a perfectly good answer. I'm not mocking him for one minute. Yeah. But, you know, for me, there was a need to, you know, just sort of, you know, thank, you know, you go, oh, thank God. You know, we look, atheists go, thank God. They say, thank God. They, an atheist will also look at the heavens. Like, oh, thank God. You know, but... You know, I suppose that's just what I do. I mean, the, I mean, the obvious point is that the other side of the coin doesn't apply. So when something bad happens to me, logically, or I suppose I would be within my rights since I'm always thanking God for good things. If something bad yeah. happens, I should be going well. Like, well, thank you very much. You know, but I don't. I don't feel like that about God for some reason, which is which is absolutely illogical. So in any theological argument, you know, I'd, I'd be torn apart for that. But I'm just not. You know, I just. <laughs> That's just that's just the way you know. That's just the way it is. Well, you talk about illogical. You're the only person that I can think of that became a Catholic and a year later got divorced. <laughs> yeah, I think they're still shaking their heads about that. At the uh, they're shaking their heads about that at the Vatican. But I mean, I don't think any like on a, on a personal level. I don't, you know. But I mean, most priests aren't like non-Catholics. Thing they're just very kind, sort of humane people and just mm. sort of, you know, and look, we all go through stuff, you might have regrets, you might not, but you know, just sit here and be quiet and be peaceful and hopefully something will start making sense to you. Now, that, that's about the extent to it. I mean, there's issues in the Catholic Church over can you take communion and can't and can you confess and and don't have to you know and, and all this this business. But you know, yeah, in the end, just you know, whatever. I can always find a priest to talk to, so you know, and that's you know, that's fine. The lessons that you've extracted from faith, from therapy, from mm -hmm. moderating your drinking, we've discussed. What did you learn about fame? Because you were already incredibly successful before you became incredibly famous. And and I think the two are very different beasts. Uh yeah, it's interesting. I haven't thought of it like that. At some measure I was you're, by some measure, I was successful, but I was never particularly felt it. You know, I was on telly and radio a lot without anyone really noticing, then passed some tipping point and then got really famous. And then I was famous mm -hmm. and successful. Then, that's a really interesting way of now you mentioned it. It's really interesting. So at the beginning, I was kind of successful. Relative to whom, I don't know, but you kind of was successful, but not particularly famous. Then I got famous, I was famous and successful. And then to some extent, it all went wrong. And then I was, in my own mind, to some extent, rather unsuccessful all of a sudden, but still bloody famous. Now that's, that's hard then, because you're that's constantly, hard. and I'm sure you'll, you know, I'm sure you'll understand what I, what I mean when I say, you know, you, and we all get to this in life in some respect, whether you're famous or not, but you, you're, you're kind of, judged or defined rather you defined by what you used to do totally you know, 
you know, I write, I write, you know, I do, I do a lot of writing and I'm, and I go on the radio and I'm, you know, and I, I find that much more fulfilling and so on. But still, you know, still people come up to me and go, oh, not on telly anymore. You know, the, you're not on telly so much anymore. Where, where have you been? You know, it's like you've died because you're on telly and then suddenly you weren't. <laughs> They... I had one today from somebody very well-meaning, and they do, and you have it all the time. Adrian, I really resonated with me. Oh, the well-meaning ones are worse. Yeah, because they're like, it's like, it's like you say, it's like, well, where have you been? You're like, well, I work oh, yeah. every day, and I'm, and I oh, listen. Yeah. I love what I do for a living. I feel very, yeah. very fulfilled. But I do understand that that syndrome of being, as you say, successful, then famous and successful, and then famously unsuccessful and that's a very tricky territory to navigate and and to come out of that feeling um not pickled by it or fried or cynical um and just just to come out of it healthy really with your mental health intact and I I think I probably underestimated how difficult it was until I was way through it and then you look back and you go gosh that was a lot um but not in comparison to some of the things that we're seeing going on in the world but but certainly through my time reading your work I really got it that thing where people cock their heads and go not on telly anymore it's like you've died but you haven't you're fine yeah 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 but the uh, I mean, you're right when people are trying to be nice. It's yeah, they really people are. People are trying to be nice. They get like there's one guy on a train back from Manchester. So I had exactly this conversation, and at the end he goes, "Oh well, you tried your best anyway, didn't you?" <laughs> I'm like, oh. right, you know, if you could get the windows of the Pendolino open, I would have probably thrown myself out. You know, it was just, uh, it was just, it was just mad. <laughs> But but let's reframe that, right? You are um, a broadcaster of 30 years experience with a show Mm. on one of the biggest networks in radio. Um, You're a celebrated author and you write for one of the most um, credible Mm. newspapers, not just here in the UK, Mm. but anywhere in the world, really, with The Guardian. So, I mean, that to me reads like success but isn't it funny oh, how know, other people read it just because you're yeah. not on a, on the daybreak sofa or going hello and welcome yeah. to the one show and yet listening back to some of the stuff you've done that was some of the most unfulfilling work that you've ever done in comparison yeah. to the stuff you do now yeah oh look it was yeah uh, it was fun but no it wasn't it wasn't you well in some you know it's, it, anything successful is fulfilling to some extent, I and mean, then people are really enjoying the show and seeming to like you, sort of that's fulfilling as well. So I don't want to denigrate it at all. It makes me sound bitter and so on. But, you know, it is not like... Look, if, I just, if I've and if i done a A1 show and, you know, six million people have watched it and said, oh, that's great. I thought, well, that's great. That's nice. But... You know, it involves this big team effort. You know, there's, there's Christine or uh, or co-present with somebody else on the show. There'd be, you know, there'd be others there. There's a big team. There's, you know, the cameras, the crew and everything. And that's what's kind of good about it. It's a big team effort. But on the, you know, or I'd, or I'd book, you know, 20 million people and watched a football match. Well, you know, they would 20 million people would have watched it. You know, if, if, if you'd started the game on the, when the referees whistle and finished it on the yeah. final whistle, they would have still have watched it. So I couldn't yeah. take that much credit for it. But I mean, with radio, it's kind of different, especially if you're doing a, a you know, a, I mean, it's still a team effort, don't get me wrong. But if you're doing a solo speech radio show for two or three hours, then, you know, if it's any good, you can probably take a good share of the credit for that. I mean, the most purely of all is writing a column for The Guardian. So if somebody stops me in the street and says, um, you know, and says, well, I mean, if they, if they don't say, if they don't say, you know, oh, you used to be on telly or, or, or something. <laughs> but if, if they said, oh, they said, I thought that program you did on X was great. That's nice. Or I used to like working lunch. That's great. Or the one show, whatever, fine. But if somebody says, I really, I thought that Guardian article you wrote was great. They, I mean, I just want to hug them, really. I can't, you know, they, in fact, I stick to them so long, they start getting quite alarmed then. I think they start sort of backing <laughs> off me as well. 
And so, because, you know, that, you know, that I've just, you know, on a Wednesday morning, and we, you know, we recorded this on a Wednesday. I mean, you know, I, you know, at seven o'clock this morning, I had a blank sheet of paper. And I was sitting in a Cafe Nero in Starbridge thinking, oh, come on, what? I've got a, I've got a thousand words here. What am I going to write? Come on, please. And then to have actually dragged something out of yourself and send it in and it goes in and then just somebody, one, one person reads it. Or, you know, somebody likes, you know, anybody stops me and likes it. I just think, wow, that, what a privilege it's been to be given that opportunity. Uh, you know, that's fulfilment. Yeah. That's what, sorry, I, I wasn't being disparaging about the work you've done before, but no, I, not I completely, at all. No, I can not understand that having a chance to fill a blank canvas with something that somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, I really enjoyed that. That, I yeah. get that. Three minutes on an interview where you don't want to let the team down because so many people have had a hand in what those three minutes yeah. look like. It's just a different experience, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's it is. kind of also, like eating from a buffet versus fine dining. <laughs> but it's also, you know, also in, in all that kind of stuff, doing football or the one show or whatever, you know, all, all the, you know, the interviews were three minutes long. Now, I, I became... I, you know, it became difficult for me to have a conversation longer than three minutes in a pub. You know, I'd be fire off three questions, get three answers. Thank you very much. Next, please. You know, it just and you know, if you go into if you go you go into this business, if you're any good, I think you go into this business because you're curious about stuff mm. and you want to ask people questions because you're interested in the answers. Now, yeah. you don't. You know, it was I, I stopped doing that for years, really, especially going on football because. You know, at a, you know, before the game, you say like, "What do you think, Lee? What do you think, Roy? What do you think, whoever?" And then at halftime, the same. What do you think? What do you think? You know, just one answer with some with some clips that we've arranged. They're going to show to illustrate the game. It's not, you know, it, it just very occasionally. What well, was one time for reasons too boring to go into? I ended up with like twelve minutes with a a football manager who's Roberto Martinez, which helped because he's a really you know, he's a really Good intelligent talker. guy. And I knew him a bit. But, you know, I was really asking him questions. I remember a real conversation. I felt the blood flowing back into my veins, you know. It was, you know, to me, that's what it's all about. And in fact, that's my big le- big lesson in life. I want to get a, a ball, something, let me call it a lesson in life, something I've realised I admire in people the most. I mean, I admire people with knowledge, but I admire people just as much, if not more, for what they want to know rather than what they do know. So I'm constantly being, I think when somebody young's coming into the business, they're one of my producers on the radio. They seem at pains to stress what they do know. That's, and that's great, right? But just, I'm far more impressed by, God, yeah, you know, about a story. It's not, I'm not going to tell you what I know about Israel. If somebody says, you know, what I'd really like to understand is this, this, and this about this situation. Then, you know, that's clever to me. That's something yeah. special because you really want to know. I say, okay, well, you know, to be honest, I don't know the bloody answer. So let's the two of us find out and then we'll make something yeah. of that. You know, yeah. but. And you fertilize that conversation to, together. Yeah. Yes, but it, it takes some guts to say that if, you, if you're just coming into the business because you're trying to yeah. prove your worth by what you know. But to me, the biggest thing you can say is, you know, not so much I don't know, but I, I don't know, but I really want to know. This is what I really mm. want to understand. It's really interesting. And listen, you know what? What I love about listening to your response to, to these questions mm. is... You're still learning. You're still curious. Yeah, yeah that, yeah. that hunger, that appetite for knowledge has not abated. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, can we jump to my next question? Yeah, yeah. Um, my next question for you, Adrian. The midwife who delivered you said to your mother, this is no baby, this is a man. And I thought that was a rather brilliant, bold first impression. And I wondered when else um, people have, have jumped to big first impressions of you and are they often right or more often wrong? I don't know. I don't know. It's a good, good question. I think, well, there's first impressions face-to-face and there's first mm-hmm. impressions on, you know, on air. And, you know, and yeah. I think they're more, you know, I think, I mean, they can be different and it's, and I think it's, I think in my case, I mean, they're not that different. Um, so I'm more or less as I am on you know, in real on telly and radio as I am as I am in real life. But that in itself can become an act because it's the hardest thing in the world to be natural on TV. So in in the end, I've I've, I've, always, I've always sort of questioned myself: am I am I just being natural, or am I playing the part of myself looking natural? But anyway, that's not <laughs> yeah. that's not quite you're asking to go. No, but and therein lies the madness, right? Of- of what you do, yeah, yeah. right? Because you yeah, actually yeah. you start to go, is this me or is this the yeah. person I think that they want me to be? Yeah. Who actually even am I anymore? <laughs> yes, that's true. But what but, but what I'm not is then you would have met plenty of people like this who I mean who will come you know, who will come across as the friendliest, you know, man of the people on the telly, and then you meet them in real life, they're alter grumps and don't want anything to do with anyone. Or vice versa, somebody who comes across as a real grump. And then, but it's actually really sweet and nice when you meet them. And, you know, I'm sure you, like me, have met, met both categories. I think... Yeah. I, th- I think... Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think, people, I think, no, I think people get you wrong in all sorts of ways. I mean, I mean, people have always said... The question I'm always asked is, like, how have you managed to get on with the West Midlands, you know, Birmingham accent? And I always said, it's like to my advantage... And I do believe it's true because when people first hear you, it's still true to some extent. People first hear you, they are, you know, they assume you're thick, really. It's one of those accents where people think make you sound thick. Oh, yeah, I do. 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 Even more so back in the day. And I just know it was definitely my advantage because the expectations, the expectations were low, were lower. So I had to do less relatively. To impress them, you know, I just, you know, <laughs> you know, when I first started the BBC, walking with my knuckles dragging along the floor, and then I just string a sentence together. I thought, oh my, the lad, this lad's a bloody genius. Well, I'm really <laughs> doing anything. But again, that's a misreading because you know, by which I've made the most of. You know, people assuming I'm thick when I'm probably not quite as thick. I think people also assume, and it's partly a ADD thing, I think, but it's partly. And sometimes I am in a way with the fairies and lose, not lose interest. I just get distracted and I'm just going to a different place mm-hmm. instead. But often I can look distracted. I can look like I'm not listening when in fact I am, or I can look bored when in fact I'm really interested. 
Now, yeah. that's a misreading of me. Now, it's partly my fault because I've got to, you know, look interested as well as be interested. You know, I get that. But, you know, that's a misreading of you, of your personality mm. as well. Something happened once in, a, in the, um, this clinic I sort of went when I'm seeing this psychologist and you rarely talk to people in the in the chain in the waiting room there for obvious reasons mm. there's rarely anybody in there actually but one time there's this woman there and she said oh, I saw you on telly last night blah blah and I was chatting to her oh yeah how you doing blah you know where are you from what were you watching oh, what do you think of that and then I and then she said oh you seem like a really nice guy on the you seem like a really nice guy on the telly. And, I'm, and it turns out you are a really nice guy. And I said, oh, well, you know, if you knew me better, you might not think that, blah, blah. But then my sort of shrink was standing behind me. And he said, and we went into our room and he said, why were you so nice to her? And I went, well, I just was. He said, no, but why? Well, I said, no, really, really think, let's think why. And then what we got down to is that I was thinking, well, she gets home tonight. She says, she says to her, partner or whoever they say oh I'm you know who's um, I met that bloke on the telly you know that has to you would have thought elicit the question what was he like and then I want her to say oh he's a really nice guy and then and then he said have you got well he said well why do you care I said I do because I'm a nice but I do care he said but I said look you know he said do you have any idea the pressure you're putting on on yourself under you know, if you care that much, you want everybody to like you. You know, you you know, it's just, you know, you just it'll drive it'll drive you mad. You know, I, th- I think you know, I think he's right. So again, that that falls in this category. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was one I, I, donkeys years ago when I was like twelve or something. My mum had some. We were on holiday with some friends, and and um, and they and they on a previous holiday. They'd bumped into, and it's funny how the details stick in my mind. They were at the Isle of Wight on holiday, and they bumped into John Noakes in a shop. <laughs> right, John Noakes was the then, it's a bit before your time, but a legendary. No, I remember with Shep. Le- well, okay. What was his name? Yeah, the dog's uh, name. Shep, Shep was his dog. It was Shep. Yeah. Shep. Yeah. John and Noakes, legend. And every you know, and he was a legendary figure, presenter of Blue Peter, mm. and. I remember he said, oh, you know, this little girl, she then went up to him and said hello. He said, he went, and he, this girl's dad went, yeah, he was quite grumpy, actually. And do you know what? Through my whole, every, you know, every time I thought about him, or even on the day he died, I thought, hey, grumpy. grumpy. grumpy he was. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had no, what, so I had unfair, one scrap it? of it, that one little girl, one family, reached that conclusion. I mean, his cat might have been run over that morning. He might have just stubbed his toe. He might just have been having a bad day. Yeah, I judged him my whole life. And I sort of, at some really level, harshly. I've fear of but Yeah, but I've been judged in the same way myself. That's what you should have told your shrink. Have you heard the one about John Noakes? That's that's how I ended up being nice to that yeah. lady. Yeah, absolute bastard, apparently. <laughs> really interesting, isn't it, when we think about like you say, the pressure you put yourself under so that people that you'll probably never meet again will think well of you. Yeah, yeah. Human ego. My third and final question kind of hangs on something I read at the weekend. It was an interview with Dame Judi Dench where she revealed that every time she loses someone dear to her, she plants a tree for them in her garden. So at the foot of her garden, she has trees planted in gratitude and in commemoration of, for example, her late husband, Michael Williams, her brother, Sir John Gilcoyd, and all the way to kind of a recently planted sapling that has a label that reads Helen McCrory. And you talked about gratitude earlier and I just I love the idea of how that would manifest itself by way of the trees that you might populate your own forest with um who are the people that you would plant for I was talking to somebody about this the other day I was think I never oh that's right I was talking to my mom because she, she wanted me to do some sticky labels I mean she's 84 and she wanted to do some sticky address labels for her Christmas cards and she had a, she'd done it ages ago. So she had a whole list and we were going through. So no, they're dead. They're dead. They're dead. They're, no, they've oh. gone. Well, he, he's dead, but she isn't. So you have to change it to Mrs. Smith rather than Mr. and Mrs. Smith, etc. And 
and I was just thinking on my, on my own phone, I've got all these contacts, like my, you know, but you know, there's, there's people who died 30 years ago whose number mm. is still in my phone. I just never can quite bring myself to delete it. Yeah. And so I suppose it's just, I mean, it's sort of everybody. I mean, you know, some of your experience, I mean, I think, I'm trying to think of, I haven't got many enemies, but if one of them died, would I take the phone out? Would they take the the contact out? Then I don't think I would. But I mean, I haven't got a you know, I haven't got a lot of land or anything to plant millions of trees on. So <laughs> it's a metaphorical I don't, I don't, forest. I don't, don't you I know, worry. I know it is. I know. I'm just thinking. We're talking about gratitude. Maybe it's the teacher that that made the difference. It's the first job interview where they allowed you to screw up but still gave you the job anyway i don't know it's those people that afforded you yeah. an opportunity to be grateful yeah there's a, yeah i mean yes there are people who yeah i mean it's impossible to split up with the people who really really significantly change your life by well you know like just the simplest level is you know when people ask me how do you get to be a TV presenter? I always say, well, you only need one thing, and that's somebody daft enough to give you something to present. In the <laughs> yeah. end, somebody's got to take that decision. I mean, although you'll be the best, be best presenter in the world, nobody's going to know it if nobody gives you anything to present. You know, so, yeah. so, so, you know, so there's a, you know, some I've got somebody like that for radio and somebody like that for telly. I mean, the latter certainly became a very close friend, and he, he you know, there'd be a, a tree for him. He's no, he's no longer with us. But, you know, the, um, and it could just be people who said just something, you know, very lit, very small and kind, mm-hmm. just at the, just at the right time. Um, and you just, you know, it just, it might be just a kind note or letter or, you know, and I just, you know, it just just a phrase, you know, can really. Help. When there was one last week, there was a there was a comedian called Laura Smith who I heard do a brilliant thing. She used to be a teacher. She did a brilliant thing on Radio Four, just a little two minute love letter to school trips, saying how important you wrote school a column trips about were. it. But, I saw. Yes, and then write the column about it. So I sent, I, I, and it was a direct lift from what she said, basically. So I sent it. So I'd, I'd made contact with Laura by this time. So I, I just sent her it, just so she's happy with what I'd written. And she sent me the most beautiful email back ever. I mean, I'd, I'll treasure it. You know, so, you know, it's just, it was just, God, I just needed that. It was just, it was just so sweet and nice for somebody who owed me nothing, you know, I don't know, mm. never met, hopefully I will meet her and just, or it can be a kindness to the stranger in the, you know, in the, in, in the street, sometimes you just meet. A, I'm, I'm struggling to find an example here, but what about the friend that took you to your first mass? You know, that's that's had oh a yeah, I look, no, but, I mean yeah. that kind of the sort of kind of that absolutely goes. You know, that, that, I suppose that goes without saying. But I mean, that goes without saying. You know, so and I'm look, I'm grateful to a lot of friends, but you know, there is also uh, and you know, and they're the main ones, but there's also. Cause you know some other people who've just said the right thing at the right mm. time, and you know, and you almost want to write them down so you don't yeah. forget them. It's a bit like I always make, you know, I always make, you know, there's, there's brilliant little lines and passages in books, and I read a lot of stuff digitally, you know, on my, you know, on the phone, and I always highlight it. And there's an app you can sort of mm. save them in, and then they come back and remind you every day. Five of them. So it's those things I'm reading. You know, there's a lot of brilliant, brilliant things. Without that app, I would have forgotten. You know, I would have forgotten yeah. about it. It's great to be reminded. You see, it's like little kindnesses people have said and done down the line that I, I, I wish I'd made a note of them. In fact, I'll, I'll... there's a column in that, Adrian. I can hear it now. There is a column. <laughs> there is a column in that. You're right. <laughs> You won't be scratching around in Starbucks next week. <laughs> uh, uh, I, 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 no, I'll, but instead of planning it out and writing it, I'll, it'll be, I'll have a blank page next Wednesday and I'm in a, in a bloody panic all over again. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, like one of the, when we go back to the idea of planting a tree, there was the therapist that you went to, well, no, the doctor that you went to see who wrote to you uh, with your diagnosis, but you never got the letter. Oh, no, and no, actually, yeah, it was three years it, I mean, you, you went... 
Yeah, I mean, like, so you lived with kind of like ignorance, really, for way longer than you needed to to better understand yourself. I mean, yeah, that 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 was. That, I mean, there's. I'm sure there's gratitude in that, but maybe not quite yeah, I mean, the tech yeah. that let you down. Well, <laughs> no, but he was he was good in the end. But I mean, in those three years between the the kind of the test and the diagnosis. I mean, there was some pretty shoddy decision making in that time, you know. Which, but, really? but anyway, look, it got there in the end. So it was, it got there in the end. So, you know, it was fine. And I'm, you know, as far as ADD is concerned, I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, that most people who need that treatment are never going to get it because they can't afford to pay for it. You know, it's just mm. the, it's absolutely, it's 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 about private medicine. You know, and I'd, I'd sort of give my diagnosis and my medication away to somebody who needs it, or somebody who's probably in prison because they never got anywhere at school. You know, mm. the, the turn to crime, addiction issues, whatever. You know, for want of proper help yeah. in their mental health. Um, you know, who probably weren't sort of high functioning like I suppose I was, if sort of miserable with it. But you know, they it's never had those advantages, and they, you know, it's just you know, something's got to change there. It has, because otherwise it's just virtue signalling from those at the top that yeah, sort of go. exactly. It's really important that you go and speak to somebody, but there's no one to speak to. No, absolutely. It's really important you get a diagnosis. There's no one to diagnose you. And it's also, like, it's creating a false impression. You know, it's creating a false impression, like, uh, you know, that the only people you get to hear talking about ADHD are the high-functioning ones, clever dicks mm. like me who come out and talk about it and bravely and all that, which is bollocks. Now you come out and talk about it. And then, so the only people in the public domain who are talking about having ADHD are the ones who are doing very well. You know, the, when in fact the ones, you know, it's created a false impression that it's somehow a good thing to have, yeah. you know, that you can do well with yeah. it. It's just not, it's not any, I met a specialism in, a specialist in autism one time. He said one of the worst things to happen, he said, for autism was the film Rain Man, when, you know, it was, you know, autism was seen as, 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 very, as a superpower. So, look, it's got that element to it, and thank goodness for that. But, you know, it is seriously, seriously, seriously debilitating for a lot of people, a lot of long, young people and their families. Yeah, trying to exist within the framework of a yeah of a society that doesn't yeah. cater for it. Hopefully, yeah, that is yeah. changing, and people are accepting the brilliance and the many different traits that an autistic yeah. mind can contribute to the wider world. No, no, that's absolutely true. But it's also it's also very difficult and challenging for some, and they need help. And like mm. ADHD yeah. is very difficult and very challenging, predominantly for those who can't afford to see a psychiatrist who are going to wait five years for a consultation who's who, you know, are never going to get the help they need. You know, that, yeah. that's the real tragedy there. And we're making it look almost as though they don't exist. You know, it's like, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're doing really well. We've got ADHD. You know, it's quite a thing. You know, I just, no. uh, you know, something's got to change there. Um, it, it's it's really interesting that you you raise that and one of the I think one of the the most uh, detailed conversations we've had on the show over the four and a half years we've been going uh so around this was with Sean Ryder who has received a very late in life diagnosis much like yourself only because his children were all diagnosed and then thought hang on a minute yeah. I probably should look at myself and yeah. has now started to unpick it and it was it was really quite distressing to listen to him laying out all of his mistakes and understanding how they occurred. And also yeah. that he said, the only time I ever felt like I was in tune with the rest of the world in as much yeah. as, you know, the society and the society norms and expectations was when I was on heroin. Yeah. That's, that's a lot, yeah, yeah. isn't it? To, to try oh, to get your head yeah. around. And, and I've, and I've, felt like you know my heart could break for him because that's a life yeah. of being wildly misread misunderstood yeah, yeah. misguided mistreated you know just yeah. a lot of miss a lot of miss. but i think he obviously needed he needed help which you you know he wasn't going to get you know society was different when he was growing up and thankfully his kids have had help mm. do you understand yourself better now that you understand your diagnosis yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely do. But actually changing the behaviour 
like I said before, you know, is like I said earlier, yeah. is is you can understand yourself, but changing it, you know, is different. But you know, I do, you know, I do, you know, do I work harder to? Yes, uh, yeah, uh, I, I try to, but it, it's a real discipline. And you know, medication is is only a, a part, probably only a small part of the answer. And in fact, yeah. it can be that can be a a bit of a cheat in a way. I mean, I'm really glad I've got it. But, it, you know, if it was suddenly, I mean, like, you know, suddenly there's a shortage of, of ADHD medication. Mm. And I just thought, well, in my case, hang on, then, you know, what would I do if I just couldn't get it? Well, I would really have to work hard at it. You know, different mindfulness techniques, just thinking carefully about how I got through the day. You know, and that wouldn't do any harm, probably. You know, I, you know, it wouldn't do it wouldn't do me any harm to really practice those techniques. No, but it would make your days harder. It would make my days harder, but I might find I might be might help me find a way of thinking my way out of it. It sounds like I'm being cynical about it. I'm not, but you are never going to change yourself with medication alone. No, it's is it change? It's managing it though, isn't it? Excuse my ignorance on this, and you will be able to tell me way better than I I ever could find out for myself. But mm. does it not give you um, a better base to build from? So if you're medicated, then you yeah. can make more rational decisions around other lifestyle changes and mindfulness techniques to, to really build on yes. it. So they complement one you another. Can. Yes, they do. But if you've got to always remember it's about both. Now, it can give you the base, but you won't necessarily use that base. He's like, oh, I feel a bit better now taking that fine. You know, crack on. Hang on, it's not job done. You've then got to read. It still no. requires work. You know, it's like, you know, you've got, it's yeah. like, you know, you've got a better pair of running shoes. You've still got to run the race. Yeah, you've still got you to know, run. Even though, you know, you, yeah, you've still got to run, yeah. Just less blisters. It's been really fascinating talking to you. I love reading your column. Um, Thank you very much. Highlight was the confession of your in-house urinal, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. If only it was that soon. I mean, I must. most people had the bougie B-Day in the 80s. You've now taken it all the way through yeah. to the noughties with, a, with, a, with an in-house urinal. <laughs> I've got a B-Day and a urinal, in fact. In fact, my like friends both. at school, Jeez. my mum always was a big fan of you, of a, not urinal, of a B-Day. And when my kids came round for, uh, well, my friends came round for tea when I was little. They always used to was in it, so you know it was like a, it was like a proto urinal. <laughs> yeah. Were you? I'm just intrigued. Were you um, surprised by the reaction to to that column? Well, because no, I'm, I'm it's something that people in the office have mentioned. Yeah. Like you know, I go, oh, we've got Adrian Charles yeah. on the on the podcast. He goes, you know, he's got a urinal in his house. It's like, no, but I do know that he's got a 30-year career in broadcasting. <laughs> I'd mentioned it. It wasn't the first time I'd mentioned it. I'd mentioned it on the telly. I'd mentioned it. I'd written about it in The Sun. I'd re- you know, it, it, I might even have mentioned it in a previous column. I'd talked about it on the radio. It just wasn't a secret. It's just funny. What? It's like a tipping point. It is suddenly... <laughs> it became a thing, but it wasn't new news. You know, it, <laughs> It felt to me like suddenly I said, "What? Have you an age? He's a West Brom fan. You're never. You're a West Brom fan. It's like I thought everybody knew this. You know, it just wasn't. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just bizarre. Any, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't explain it. I I, I, I give it an affectionate pat every day. I think it's something that people will read in your obituary, Adrian. It's that yeah, important. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's become. There's a thought. I might get a you rhino shaped gravestone. <laughs> Could have talked to him forever. Thank you so much to Adrian Charles. And don't forget his book, The Good Drinker, is available now wherever you get your books, just in time for the season where we may all be tempted to get a little bit too jolly. Now, if that's left you in the mood for more conversation with fellow broadcasting giants, why not have a rummage around in our back catalogue where you'll find episodes with Ken Bruce, Lorraine Kelly, Sean Ryder, who we mentioned there. Not a broadcasting legend, but a legend nonetheless. Simon Mayo's in there, uh, Eamon Holmes, Ruth Langsford, Vernon Kay, Richard and Judy, Ben Shepherd. I mean, I could 
go on. And I'll be back on your feeds on Tuesday with more vintage cuts from the cellar. Until then, thanks so much for listening. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.